I am so excited to have Dr. Kathy Escamilla on the podcast. You are one of the legends in our field. I remember uh, reading, going through the math master's program and then reading all of the citations that had your name in it. And then I currently reading uh, books and it has your name again. And I was interviewing someone last week uh, Melissa Canahan, and she was saying like, oh, yes, Escamilla, or Dr. Laura Beth Escalante. <laughs> and uh, she wrote a book, and she was talking about your Si Se Puede, or no, uh, your Si Se Dice, yes, Si Se Dice strategy. And I was like, oh, I'm going to interview her next week. So it is <laughs> so, <laughs> it's so great to have a living master, a legend in our field to share with us. So welcome, Dr. <laughs> Escamilla. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to have a chance to talk with you. Um, you're so impressive. You were, I just want to name one more thing that you were the two-time president, past president of NABE, so the National Association of Bilingual Educators. So it is so impressive. It's, or can I start off with asking, what is something that of all your work, um, what is something that you are most proud of professionally? Oh, that's, that's kind of hard, but it's kind of easy also. So um, I, uh, I take great pride every spring in seeing our undergraduate masters and PhD students walk across the stage and see the next generation of teachers, of researchers, of school leaders, and know what a tremendous difference they're going to make in the lives of kids. So um, teaching has always been something that I very much enjoyed doing, but I take great pride in watching those students walk across the stage, um, many of whom are first generation, many of whom didn't see themselves in college, um, and their parents are there busting their buttons and uh, with pride, and it's just, it's, it's the best. That has been a highlight of my career. It seems like um, in the teaching field, we have teachers who are working with students directly, and then we also have professors who are teaching the new teachers. And mm -hmm. I think they play such a critical and central role in our teaching field because uh, teaching is a highly skilled profession mm -hmm. and it requires research, it requires um, expertise, and that comes from professors like you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But they inspire me with what they've done, especially in the last year with what I've seen classroom teachers do under stress, um, under really bad conditions that, you know, nobody created for them, a situation created for them, but to see them rise to the occasion has been really, really impressive and just resolves my faith in the profession. It, I think it has changed the way people think about teachers mm -hmm. generally. It's because mm -hmm. they see the work that, because parents usually never go to school and see the work that we're doing with right. the kids. Uh -huh. And now they get to see as they walk past, past the kitchen, they're seeing their kids <laughs> engage this way. You know, it's yeah. so funny. People are talking about the learning loss that has occurred. And I don't think that happens that happened at all because kids are engaging uh, right. with the teachers. Teachers are, cre are creating mm -hmm. opportunities to mm -hmm. learn. And so it's just a different platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would love uh, for us to talk about two of your books. Well, the first one is Biliteracy from the Start. And then the second one we're going to talk about is Teaching Reading to English Learners. So uh, as the past uh, two times president of NABE, I'd love for you to talk about uh, why do we want to support bilingualism and biliteracy? 
Oh, there's so many reasons and we only have an hour. So I'll try to hit some of the hit some of the highlights. Um, so more people in the world are bilingual than are monolingual. And um, the United States for all of our gifts and all of the um, advantages of living here ha has short-sighted in one really important way. And that is that we have never required our students to become bilingual and to be globally competitive in the 21st century, to be a citizen of the world, to advocate for peace and justice, one has to know more than one language. So there are lots of good reasons to be bilingual that you know, researchers have said it's good for an individual, it's good for a community, and it's good for a nation. Um, so um, when kids come to school um, with a, a resource, which is a language other than English, right. um, what a wasted resource if we don't develop that. As we are adding on English, the argument is not one that's against the teaching of English. That's what bilingual means, knowing more than one. But um, the, the, the sad, thing is that so many of our kids who come to school speaking a language other than English leave school only knowing English or having only had the opportunity to develop literacy in one language. And it's a wasted resource. It's a wasted national resource. <laughs> I feel like I have to go through a confessional because I feel like when I started my language specialist in my position, I would have kids who were bilingual and then by the time they graduate, they become monolingual. Yes. Right. And that's yeah. so sad. And I realized, like, I have so much to learn from my bilingual educators because really we're not in the position or the profession to transition kids out of their home language into another. That shouldn't be our goal. Exactly. Yeah, our goal should be adding on to what they bring. One of the, you know, that people that for you mentioned the, the whole idea of learning loss. And one of the things that we think happened that was actually advantageous during the pandemic was that kids who stayed home continued, kids who didn't speak English, who stayed home continued to get input from parents who spoke non-English languages. And so the opportunities for language maintenance were probably enhanced by the fact that we had to do so much online learning. Right. Now, I wouldn't wish a pandemic on anyone, but, um, but we do know that, um, that the, the parents have resources and they have funds of knowledge and that the kids had more access to them. Yes. And that's why when, when, when we are allowing kids or supporting kids to con continue to be bilingual, they involve their family. This is a bridge to the family. Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. This is, this is a way to engage the family because it's, I think if I had a bilingual education when, uh, let's say Vietnamese American, Vietnamese uh -huh. English, because I'm American, my mom always felt like there was a distance between her and the education sure. system, right? And that was not of anyone's fault. But if she was, if I was attending a bilingual Vietnamese school, my mom would be much more involved in that. Yep. And so mm -hmm. it's a gift. Yep. You, you talked about the uh, individual society and a nation. Would you run through that a little bit more and talk about? Okay, so the advantages of being yes. bilingual. So for an individual, we know there are cognitive and academic advantages. So there's a phenomena called cognitive flexibility um, that is, is sort of like you're, you know, you have one arm is better than two, two languages is better than one. So it's a mental, um, it, it, it's a, it, not a mental issue. I don't mean it like that. I'm not, uh, not fully awake this morning, I guess. Um, it is a, it's a cognitive advantage in terms of um, uh, all kinds of things, uh, cognitive flexibility, 
uh, bilinguals, individuals who are learning two languages have two ways of interacting with the world. They have um, two conceptual ways to express one thing. So you see a chair, instead of just being able, being locked in knowing it's a chair, it's a chair, but it's also a silla. So that gives you a, sort of a double take on one phenomena. So that's good for the individual. For a community, we know that, especially in the United States, um, people constantly arrive and there's a constant interaction of languages and cultures. And so in any community, there is more vitality when languages are welcomed. And when people move into a community, what do we need? We need bilingual people for what? Law, education, the medical profession. Can you imagine during the pandemic what would have happened if we did not have people who could speak Vietnamese and Spanish and Chinese and Korean and Arabic in the hospitals dealing with families? So that's advantageous to a community and to our nation if we are going to position ourselves to be leaders in efforts toward world peace, we have to understand more than just our own realities. And we can't, we can't and we shouldn't depend on interpreters and translators. Um, we should have some firsthand uh, ability to understand the world beyond our own, our own little um, myopic spaces. Yes. It's, so I love how you talked about the like, multiple circles. I feel like as you're talking, yeah. I see like, the, like it's kind of like um, the strategy of uh, text to self, text to, yeah. uh -huh. uh, to text to text, text to world, uh -huh. right? And it's very yes. similar, or uh, very similar to Rude Dr. Redeem Sims Bishop. She talked uh -huh. about mirrors, sliding glass doors, and uh -huh. uh, and windows into worlds. And so mm -hmm. language is like that. So, language is like that too. Uh -huh. Yes. Uh -huh. So when we can read uh, for your book by literacy from the start, what are the practices and framework for biliteracy? Okay, so one of the frameworks for biliteracy um, is that we have to equalize the status of languages. We can't just be doing, uh, and the book is about Spanish and Spanish speakers, because that's, that's the work that I've done. And those are the schools that I've taught in and the kids with whom I've had the, the honor to interact over the years. But um, it, first about language status, that uh, first of all, biliteracy is a higher form of literacy than monoliteracy, is a higher form of literacy. And so we tend to privilege, you know, monolingual English, particularly high stakes test scores as being the coin of the realm, when in fact, we ought, we ought to be understanding that kids who can read in two languages um, are kids who have some advantages over kids who can only read in one. So that requires an equalization of the, of the status of languages. So in our framework, we always put English and Spanish side by side. We don't put one on top of the other one. The goal of the program is biliteracy, not transition to English. So that's that's our framework. In our framework, we have four equal, but equally important um, aspects. One is oracy, and that is the oral language that you need to be successful in reading. Um, oral language in many US literacy programs is undervalued. It is greatly undervalued, and yet it plays such an important part um, kids who are highly verbal um, and know have a good vocabulary and good sentence structures and good ability to interact with people likely to become better readers. And yet we kind of undervalue that. But the research is now developing. It's on our side. Reading, of course, and writing 
Writing has also been undervalued in U.S. schools, particularly in beginning literacy programs that we think kids have to read before they can write. And that's not true. The two can go on simultaneously. And then metalinguistic development, which is, which is the cognitive development. It's learning what language is about. It's learning how languages work, how Spanish works in ways that's same, the same as English and how it works in ways that is different than English. So our framework has those four components in both Spanish and English. An important part of our framework says that we also need to help children connect their two languages. Yes. Um, and that that's important for them to not see them as separate and, and um, not one having nothing to do with the, the other one. Um, previous generations, unfortunately, had learned that their native languages had no place in school, that they were of no benefit to learning, and that kids needed to switch off their Spanish language when they came into the classroom because it was English time and Spanish was just going to interfere, get in the way. Our framework says absolutely not that the languages uh, reinforce each other if given an opportunity to develop both of them simultaneously. Yeah. How did we, I remember that as well when I was a kid, it was English only in school. And then uh -huh. I still go around the world and I still around the schools and I still see English only signs around. Yeah. And I'm thinking how... What, what would you say to a school district or teachers who have those signs up or have those practices of linguistic imperialism? Take it down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if well-intentioned, yes. um, it's hurtful. It, yes. it, what do you say when you say English here in school? Well, school is a, high, is a place of high status among many, most of our language minority families in this country. And if the school says English only, what are they not saying? They're not saying your language, your culture, your parents, your grandparents aren't, don't have as much status, aren't as valuable as those who speak English. And that is not the right message to send to kids. And it won't help learn English. I mean, all of our research shows us that mostly um, English-only programs, while they teach kids to speak English, they usually result in language loss. And they don't, when you compare them to well-implemented, uh, well-funded bilingual programs, they don't stack up. The bilingual programs win every single time. So, It really is true. When I started learning Lao, I uh -huh. went back and I couldn't pull my Spanish out to help me. And I couldn't pull English because the grammar structures are so different. So I went and pulled, like I didn't intentionally did this, but I thought about how is this said in Lao? How is this said in Vietnamese? Mm -hmm. right? And then when I started learning Thai, I was like, oh, how is this said in Lao? Oh. Yes. And so it's like one language goes to the next and really builds on the next. Language is a resource. Language, yes, language. any kind of language right. is a resource. Right. And you also said language is uh, a political, school is a political act, right? Yeah. And so Dr. Cummings said that when we have kids leave their home languages uh, at home, we also have the kid leave them at home. So yeah. I, I, I guess I'm not saying that correctly, but it's the concept of uh, when kids' home languages are not welcomed at school, then their cultures are not welcomed at school. That's right. right? Yeah. And in the end, it's there is an internalization by kids. Absolutely. Right? Because they see themselves, they see their family as less than because they're not welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh huh. So it's really more like it's a it's a by by literacy and bilingualism is as much as a social action, a social justice, as well as an educational movement. Mm hmm. Absolutely, an educational movement, and the, it comes as no threat to English, which is the political part of it. Um, I think that the the at times. 
there's just ignorance. There are really well-meaning people that think that by telling a kid, just turn off your Spanish channel and turn on the English channel, that that's in fact going to help them to, to learn English quicker. We know that isn't true. So I'm giving them credit for being well-intentioned. But then there are people who are just flat out um, uh, thinking that, you know, to be to speak English is you can't be an American if you don't speak English. Right. And that isn't true. Right. We have a lot of work left with us. Today. Yes, we do. <laughs> we'll get there slowly yes, we do. and slowly. Yeah. Yeah. What do they say? They say, history leans on the side of justice. We hope. We yeah. <laughs> can we talk about um, what are the things teachers can do to support really young kids to, uh, mm -hmm. to be biliterate and, and uh, bilingual? Yes. Well, so the uh, first thing, of course, is to have a well-defined, well-structured, well-implemented uh, program where kids have the opportunity to learn to read and write in both of their languages in school in the formal setting. And uh, But that isn't always true. In fact, about 80-some percent of the kids in the country who come to school speaking non-English languages are in English medium programs. They're in schools where they only have an opportunity to learn English. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't support the heritage languages of those children. So one of the ways that we can do that is by absolutely encouraging their parents to keep using that um, non-English language at home. And um, one of the things parents frequently tell us that they're afraid to, that the, by using the, their first language with kids, that that's somehow gonna confuse kids, that that's gonna slow them down in school, that's gonna impede their progress in English. Nothing is further from the truth. So we need to tell them, if my job's to teach English, your job is to help me by continuing to speak Vietnamese at home. And it's not just so important that you talk to your kids in your language, but that you demand that they respond to you in the language. Because very, very quickly, what happens is that parents keep on talking in Spanish or Vietnamese or whatever the children answer in English. Everybody's fine because the parents think the children are bilingual. The children are fine because their parents are so happy they're learning English and nobody's any wiser until along comes high school. And the kid, you ask the kids, how do you say this in Vietnamese? Well, they understand it but they don't know how to say it in Vietnamese. So we have to help parents understand that production is the skill that's going to enable them to maintain the language. And that is also the cognitive skill that's gonna help kids learn to read and write in English. Oh. And it's it's so, so hard. I mean, I, I raised two kids and I have four grandkids now and it's very hard because um, they're very lazy. They <laughs> They're not lazy. They're cute, but they but but when given the chance, they will always respond in English. Right. Yeah, always. So we have to re reinforce the parents that it's okay. The second thing we have to do is to tell parents, your parents, that just because you don't speak English doesn't mean you're not adults. And so we frequently see that the best, the kids that do the best in school are the kids whose parents maintain some of the parenting skills that come from their home countries. They demand that their kids respect teachers. They demand that they try hard in school. They demand that they show up uh, ready to learn. And we can tell parents, you can do that in any language. Do not turn over those responsibilities to your kids because too often we see seven, eight, nine-year-old kids, although it's illegal, translating at parent-teacher conferences and interpreting, doing adult things. Um, and, and we hear people telling parents, well, you know, um, that's not the way we do it here. How you have to do, I mean, short of physical, um, physical abuse and things like that, 
there are many, many parenting strategies that are quite effective um, culturally that I think we need to encourage people to, to maintain and keep and, and, um, and, not, and not lose. I, there are so many things I want to say. I, well, first of all, I'll talk about the homeland, well, the parenting. Uh, uh -huh. There are multiple ways to parent, right? Mm -hmm. And we can't have school impose one culture of parenting on families. And I, that's what I learned from Dr. Maria Pena. She said, oh, when we see a different way of parenting, we affirm it and we support it. And then yep. parents feel that they can engage with the school more because the school is like, oh yeah, this is the way you do it. Yes, sure. continue. Right. Yeah, continue, especially if they can help us by, by being parents, right. by being good parents and the right. best way that they know how to do that. Right. I also, I think you struck a chord with me because right now I'm, I'm currently with my sister in the summer with my mom and my, and all three of the adults are speaking Vietnamese to each other and the kids, oh, but nice. the kids are only responding in, in English. English, right? And I look at my, my nephew who's 32 and he can, he has a great relationship with me and my sister because we speak English to him. Uh, yet he has a very fragmented relationship with my mom his grandmother because he can he can hear her and understand her fully in vietnamese but the production hurts because yeah. he hasn't yeah. been able to produce vietnamese in, for many years and so his he doesn't have a relationship with grandmother anymore right isn't that sad it's yeah. so sad this is and that's so that's a story that can be told millions of times right. in this country right. yeah and this is why parents are so important they Dr. Uh, Jim Cummings said, parents can read to kids at home. They can mm -hmm. tell stories of, what mm -hmm. of what's happening. And I said, hey, my mom had only a third grade education. What can she do? And he said, she can do so much. She can mm -hmm. tell stories that of her, of her childhood. Mm -hmm. She can talk, tell fables. She can mm -hmm. narrate what she's doing at work. She can talk uh -huh. about things that uh, from her past. And by doing that, you understand the culture. But by also doing that, you also have another language uh, schema to add. Right. right, right, yeah. And some of these stories go untold. I mean, you know, just par parents sometimes want to spare their kids because they think it will be painful. But kids want to know, how'd you get here? When'd you get here? How'd you meet dad? You know, what was hard about it? What was easy about it? You know, um, they and sometimes parents feel that they can't share that with their kids. But by doing so, that develops oracy that develops ability to express oneself using, using the schemata, like you said, of the, the native language. And then when you bring that over to English, then you've got two ways of creating conversation and two ways of thinking about the world. Right, right. I'm, I'm currently binge watching Dr. Krashen's um, webinars well, and he always talks about uh -huh. comprehensible input, but he's uh -huh. kind of saying, don't worry about comprehensible output. Or don't worry about output. And I'm, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, so kids, so you have kids like my niece and my nephew who have comprehensible input. They understand Vietnamese, but they don't have output. Right. And that's really a struggle. I think it is too. And I think that's, well, yeah, I think that's a little bit outdated, the, yeah. the way of, the way <laughs> of thinking about second language acquisition. Right. Yeah. Right. So now that, can you, before we go on to talking about what teachers can do to support biliteracy and in early years of really little kids, by the way, if you're an elementary school kid teacher, I don't. I I just want to applaud you because it is so difficult to teach. I was I taught <laughs> two years in the fifth grade, and I was like, oh, I have a new respect for colleagues in the elementary school. 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> did you teach in elementary school? Is that I it? did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I taught first grade uh, for two years. I taught fifth grade. And then I was a resource. I was a reading resource teacher. So I taught every grade. But I, you know, was like an, what was called, wasn't called interventionist then. That's what it would be called now. Yeah. It's tough, isn't it? Being an It's very school. hard work. Right. It's very, very hard work. But I taught in schools always with newly arrived immigrants. And I would not trade that experience for uh, anything. Um, the children were the best behaved kids that I ever had the privilege of working with. Um, the parents were the most... Um, thoughtful, um, kind, uh, wanted the best for their kids, um, you know, economically didn't have much, but um, had aspirations for their kids and expected their kids to come to school and try their best. And well, uh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for middle-class English speaking kids and all of their issues and the ways they challenge <laughs> teachers. I was very lucky. We are, we are, we always hear stories about language specialists who say, oh my goodness, it's, it is hard, but the joy that the kids bring, mm -hmm. the, the kids grow so fast, so quickly, uh -huh. and they have such a love because they come from cultures where education is the path to success. And they, they try so hard. And, you know, sometimes that when, and sometimes when they make a mistake, they make a logical connection and it's just absolutely hilarious, you know, and they don't even know what that, but they're trying so hard and they're just so full of so joy. Cute. Yeah. yeah. You, it seems like you have, because of your elementary school experience and working with parents as, as a bilingual, um, what did you, what practices did you notice that parents did that was really effective? Um, oh, okay, that's a good, uh, so what, one of the things, the respect for the teacher and the respect for the school, that school isn't a place where you go and mess around, you know, that you're lucky to be able to, I mean, so those messages, right. the, the message of, School's a serious place. You go there, you try. Uh, we expect you to represent not just yourself as an individual, but your family. Right. If you let us down, you're disappointing the family. I mean, some people say, oh, God, what a heavy guilt trip that is to, to play on kids. I didn't see any of my kids that I taught. I didn't think that they were psychologically badly affected by any of those messages. Uh, but they certainly realized that they weren't the center of the universe. And I do think that that is the um, mistake that too many of our, of our middle-class English-speaking dominant culture people, um, the, everything revolves around the child. And so the child doesn't learn to interact in a positive way, a cooperative way with their community and aren't open to, you know, um, aren't open to being part of a group where you're not the star of the show. And those are pretty broad uh, generalizations, but that those are my observations. Right. You're talking about mindsets. Like, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. we, we want to have kids like the, what parents can do is ha send kids who want to learn and yeah. have a respect for learning because then, then uh -huh. that's a lot of the work already. And, you know, parents can, you know, the parents that I taught, if I said, they don't have to have their own bedroom to do a homework or anything like that. Just provide a place at the kitchen table and, and say, okay, five o'clock every day, you got homework to do, sit down and do it. Um, the, uh, and most, most often, uh, parents would, were very happy to listen to what the school said and ask them to do, as long as it was something they saw that they could do. I mean, right. sometimes we ask ridiculous things of, 
of parents. I, I, like I said, parents can help by encouraging their children to speak to them in their native language. Parents can help by, um, if they can't read in English, that's fine. If they can't read at all, that's fine. Have your children read to you. Uh, because that practice is important for your children. Have your children read to you and then tell you what it is that they have read. Don't just let them read the words, but ask them. So what does that mean? Tell me. A very important crossover strategy is you can say, okay, you read it to me in English. Tell me what that what you just read in Vietnamese. Because that's, that's así se dice. That's when we get to building cognitive flexibility. And one of the ways that we do that is by encouraging kids to take what they know in one language and to put it in the other language. Right. It's continuing to, to, to use both languages and to merge yep. them together. And That's all great. of that can be done by parents at home right. who have little education and not a lot of economic needs. Right. What I'm hearing is you're saying that schools need to, to see the assets that parents have even if they can't read, even if they're not literate in their mm -hmm. home languages, that's fine because they can mm -hmm. do so much with the mindset, with just having kids participate to share mm -hmm. what the parents, what the kids are doing at school. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about uh, now uh, school. What can teachers do to develop literacy at an early age? Well, I wish that when I was teaching, I would have had the, the Internet because you can have books in all kinds of languages in your classroom, even if you're not doing a formal education program. Um, there, there's no reason. And now with the internet, my gosh, we have access to resources in many languages at our fingertips. So there is no reason why we can't encourage kids to look at videos, to read books, to, to know about their cultures and other cultures, because like I said, we have the world at our fingertips yes. in schools. So I would make time, no matter if I had 10 languages in my classroom, I would have 30 minutes a day where I would allow kids to do something in their home language as a way of saying, your language is valuable in this classroom. I would give them time to share with other kids in the class. Oh, so what did you learn when you read that book? Tell us about that again learned about it in their language, they're telling us about it in English. That's an important part of metalinguistic development, which is a part of our, our framework for biliteracy. So we make time. Teachers ha have an obligation. And I think that as native English speakers, sometimes we forget, and this is the value of knowing more than one language, is that you realize how idiomatic expressions and things like that just totally trip you up. So, um, you know, when we say we're interested, no, thank you. I'm not interested means I don't want to buy your product. No, thank you. I'm not interesting means something else totally different. And so those are the kind of things that I think good teachers need to be aware of that are as our kids are coming into English, they frequently don't understand the difference. I, I, I used an example of a, a teacher who says, OK, OK, friends. What we're gonna do is clap the number of sounds in the word sofa. Now that sounds simple, sounds simple enough, if, but you can't just understand the um, what you're supposed to do. You have to break down a sentence like that. So, okay, friends means the teacher's trying to get my attention. Okay, how many, we're gonna clap. What does that mean? Well, it means put two, two hands together. The number of sounds. Well, that means a word is broken down into sound units. All of that is something that a native English speaking child does not have to have broken down for them. But kids coming into school being non-English speakers need to 
teachers need to break down their language and understand what it is that they're asking kids to do. And by doing so, they can be better teachers of English. Right. Too yeah. often, and again, I think, especially a lot of our young teachers, they really want to know. They want to do well by kids. These are not, you don't go into teaching because you're a mean person, uh, but sometimes you just know, we just assume things. We assume that kids understand things like, okay, friends, or you know, all the ways that we learned in teacher education that you should never directly talk to kids, especially when you're managing a classroom. So you, you don't say sit down and shut up. That would be wrong. So you say, I like the way that Stephanie's listening, which means sit down and shut up. But kids who don't understand that, don't understand that that is code uh, for a classroom management strategy may keep on doing stuff. Like a kid told me, I learned that this actually from a kid in school who I said, Jose, the teacher um, is talking to, no, she's not talking to me. And his interpretation is when she's ready for me to sit down, she'll tell me. Uh, every day, the teacher thought, well, you know, Jose is the last one to sit down, the last one to pay attention. Um, I always have to put his name on the board. He didn't think he was being disrespectful. He didn't understand the code. So I think that it's incumbent upon our teachers to understand what how language needs to be um, broken down and communicated so that the message is understood mutually. I remember, and I do think they're open to that. I don't think that teachers are closed-minded at all about that. Right. I remember a podcast about NPR called Lost in Translation, and this researcher uh, put um, all of these uh, speakers of English who are non-native speakers in a room, and they were they were understanding each other fully. Then all uh -huh. of a sudden, they put an English like an English native speaker in the room, and all of a sudden, the comprehension went down, and they started uh, transcribing what the person said. And it was full of idiot idiomatic expressions. Right. And then pe these people who were understanding fully before, now their comprehension is, has drastically been reduced. Right? And so thank you for sharing about that. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's, that's, that's a wonderful example because we do tend to talk in code. And I think uh, they say Americans are the worst. So Americans. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. Because our language is flowery and that happens sometimes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Can you talk about, so we talked about oracy right there. Can you mm -hmm. talk about write, uh, reading and then let's go to writing afterwards? Okay. So the foundation of reading in my mind is meaning. If uh, we only teach kids to decode words so that they can understand them better and read with more fluency so that they can understand better. Um, I am very, very worried about reading movements in the United States that are so heavily focused on decoding words that kids don't get a chance to really learn to comprehend. Um, the, the, all, the meta, the, let, let's put it this way. We've had several um, meta studies, meta-linguistic studies about um, second language kids in this country. Um, the, unfortunately, the most recent one's about 15 years old now, and it was August and Shanahan. But one of the things that they found where that kids who come to school speaking a, um, a non-English language and are learning English as a second language learn to decode as efficiently and quickly as native English speaking kids. When they get to the fifth grade, the thing that slows them down is that is comprehension and writing. And so it's not that they're not learning how to break down words or they're not learning sounds or the names of letters, uh, but they're, they're becoming very good decoders without understanding right. or an ability to interact with text. 
And when you can interact with text, then you can interpret what the text message is. And so um, I'm really, really worried about the current direction of people claim who claim that we have a science of reading and it applies equally to non-English speakers as well as to English speakers. That is not true. That doesn't seem to be true. And I, I'm very fearful for what that will do um, to the teaching of reading. Um, so, so yes, do kids need to learn how to uh, decode words in English? Absolutely, they do. Uh, but meaning is the reason that we teach kids to read. Right. I remember there was, I was reading the science of reading and I put it on Twitter and then someone in the comments said, we have to be really careful about applying data that was done on a group of monolinguals to mm -hmm. a, and apply that to a group of multilinguals. Yeah, without examination. Yeah. Yeah, that well, that's a validity issue. And psychometricians have said that forever that no, no test or assessment or intervention is valid if it's applied to us to a group of students for whom it was not attended, intended. And, right. and that's what we've got going here, plus a misapplication of the whole word science, but that's another conversation. And the, the funny part of that Twitter uh, message, someone said, please talk to Dr. Escamilla about that. Oh. And, that's, <laughs> and that's why I emailed you. And I was like, okay, uh, I will, because you're yeah, yeah. a renowned expert on bilingualism. So. <laughs> Can you talk about, so let's move from, uh, so how do we make me create meaning then? Yeah, after we learn yeah. how to code. So That's in cool. other countries, so that that one of the things I was going to say is if we're going to do biliteracy and do it well, we have to be respectful of the internal structures of the languages that we're using. And that means that our reading instruction in Spanish shouldn't be English translated into Spanish. It should be taking a look at how Spanish is taught in countries where Spanish is the national language. What are the methods used there? And that's the methodology and the pedagogy of authenticity that we need to be applying here. So um, in Mexico, the, where kids start learning, it's not that they don't learn to decode, they do, but they start by learning words as a whole because words carry are the unit of meaning. And then, so they start with kids, kids' names. So we have a kid in our class, her name is Jocelyn. Okay, Jocelyn, we can say, Jocelyn lives in Puebla. Okay, words can be made into sentences. Jocelyn is made up of Jocelyn, three syllables. Okay, three, three syllables. Jocelyn is made up of five, six letters. I don't know how, depends on how you might want to spell Jocelyn. I should have picked Jose or a, an easier name. So with a word, you can break it down into words, into letters, sounds, and syllables or you can take the word and build on it into sentences, paragraphs, and stories. But the word is the unit of instruction that we start with, not letters, not, not, especially not letter names and not letter sounds. That is different than English pedagogy. But what we see in too many programs in the United States is English methodology that has been translated into Spanish because we want something parallel. We don't want something authentic. We want English and Spanish to look just alike, even though they're two very different languages. Now, can you imagine what they're trying to deal with in Mandarin English programs using this? How in, how in the world um, does reading instruction happen unless it's authentic to the language? I feel like I want that shirt that says, like, words, words carry meaning. 
Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Words are the units of meaning. And right. so it's, you don't, um, you, you don't, the, the purpose for learning to read is not so you read fast and it's not so you can decode unknown words. It's so that you can derive meaning from what you're reading. Right. So what would you say about um, independent reading then? About independent reading? I like it. I do it. I mean, <laughs> I read a lot independent. We, we do know that children who are engaged and motivated and like to read, um, become better readers than kids who who don't who, who can read but don't like to. So yes. um, so that said, however, uh, I am not a big fan of taking kids who are beginning uh, in their acquisition of English and setting them in a corner and telling them to read for pleasure for twenty minutes. If someone did that to me in Russian, I don't think I think I'd sit there quietly. I was always a quiet student, but I think I'd be daydreaming. I'm not sure. So um, there is value to it, but not value, not equal value to everyone. We really have to understand where um, students are in their acquisition of a, of a particular language. Right. So now that this talk, this goes to the talk about balanced literacy. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Would you talk about that then? About balanced. Li- okay. So here's what, there's an old adage in Spanish that says, no hay mal libro en manos de buena maestra. Oh. Beautiful. And there are no I, bad I've books. always loved that. So there's no, there are no bad books in the hands of a good teacher. Yes. Okay. So what I think happens as happens in the United States, and I've lived through several of these reading wars yes. is that every decade or so we decide everything we're doing is rotten and we got to throw it all out and then we got to replace it with something. And so, and, but as we replace it with policy, we never enact the policies in ways that make sense to teachers or that teachers fully have a chance to learn and try out. So what you see implemented in schools is sort of the flavor of the week or the flavor of the month or the flavor of the year. So what we what we have, we have we never had complete implementation of something called whole language, whatever that was. We've never had complete implementation of balanced reading programs, however anyone defines them. And unless we do something drastically different, we likely won't have complete implementation of this movement toward phonics early and often as everyone's trying to do. So we consistency and fidelity to any particular reading approach is probably as important as whatever approach you are using. Now I have my opinions about the limitations of approaches that don't see reading and writing as ways that we're going to reading as ways that we interact with text and derive meaning and writing as ways that we learn to be to express ourselves in in a variety of ways and for a variety of purposes depending on the content and what we're being asked to do right that's so i'm sorry go ahead yeah so like like i'm saying our problem in the u.s is that we never really have had a pedagogy um, we have programs and we have movements and we have policies that kind of never fully get implemented. But then we do something that says, well, this isn't working. And, and we have never been child focused. Hmm. And this is kind of a political statement, but you can take it or leave it or cut it out. But, uh, but because our goals have always been about keeping the U.S. number one in the world, whatever that means, and not about teaching children. Right to fully develop their own potential. It's sad that, but the, it's amazing that you said that, like you pointed that out to us to say like, this is the reality, yeah. right? We're trying to be number one, but we forget about what's, what's really important for kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And number one at what? I mean, you know. You talked about, um, so I'm I'm thinking, I think there are a lot of teachers who are applauding right now, uh, talking about uh, the movement away from uh, phonics early and often to saying like there's there is a space and it's a time Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. phonics. Like, like, I guess your example of putting putting you in a Russian school and having you read in the back would not help you. Right. That's the point when you need phonics instruction. But mm-hmm. that cannot be the only reading diet that students have. No, no. It can be, you know, at most, it should be about 20 minutes a day uh, in kindergarten, first grade and second grade. Yeah. I mean, if the, I, it, there is a place for it. And in our framework, in we have um, phonics in both reading and writing, because actually in Mexico, when they teach kids to decode, they use a method called dictado. And they have children take the teacher dictates a sentence and the children write sentence or sentences. And from that, teachers can see how, how children can decode words because they have to hear sounds in their head and record the sounds on a page. So it's not just through reading that we can teach phonics, it's through writing. So we, we are suggesting that maybe 10% of writing instruction and 25% of reading instruction be decoding. But then the rest of the time be devoted to oracy, to the development of metalinguistics, to different kinds of writing and reading absolutely with an emphasis on comprehension. Right. I have to That's a broader view. I have to applaud you because this is the second time you're you're the first person I've interviewed that has talked about uh, pedagogy in another in another country. Because you uh. talked about Mexico. You talked about, well, we're going we're gonna to have Spanish-speaking kids in America use a monolingual program to teach them. Why not let's learn about how they do it in Mexico or yeah. in South America? And so in South America, yeah. Right, right. Central and South America, oh, right. right. And so I was like, yay, this is great. I guess this is the part of like a, um, the social justice movement of saying like there are other countries and other regions in the world. They also know how to teach their kids. Let's learn yeah. from them. They have a pretty good history of teaching kids to read and write. Right, yeah. right. We, I have two more questions. Um, can we talk about, you talked about medical linguistic uh, often, so we can talk about that and then we'll end with uh, the podcast with writing. We'll have to reschedule another time to talk about okay. teaching reading, uh, teaching readings to English learners if that's possible because this has been such a rich conversation. Yeah, thank you. Um, can you talk about metalinguistic uh, awareness and practices? Yeah, so metalinguistics is basically learning about how language works. And so in biliteracy programs, we have to learn both how our language works. So that's with how our language works within language and across languages. So within language in Spanish, one of the things I got to learn is gender agreement. That there's an L and a la and a los and a las. So there's masculine, feminine, singular, and plural. In English, we got the, a, and an. So within language, I have to learn in Spanish, there's gender agreement that's really important. In English, it's the, a, and an, and it's not so important. But either way, I have learned both within and across language differences. That's metalinguistic development. I have to learn things like... um, the adjective generally comes after a noun in Spanish, but before a noun in English. I have to learn that the title of a book in English is all the, the first um, letters of important words in a title, but in Spanish is just the, the first word of a title. Right. So within language, I have to learn how titles are formed. And then across languages, I have to learn similarities and differences. 
Um, so that's meta language, but, but language also works in a different. So that's, I mean, those are, those are obvious things. Those are things we would do in elementary school, but those are things that serve us well in life. Because if we try to do things like translate literally idiomatic expressions, they don't make any sense. I mean, so we can do it, but people, are, what are you talking about? So you don't you you don't use the same words to say the same thing. So first of all, I have to within my language, I have to say, what does it mean to say, don't judge a book by a cover by its cover? Okay, that I have to understand what that means. That means what's on the outside is not always what's on the inside. That what am I doing when I'm doing that? I'm developing metalinguistic awareness. These are other ways of saying that same thing that. My mother said, don't judge a book by a cover a million times, but now I'm learning deeper meanings of it. I'm learning what it really means. So if I want to tell my mother-in-law who only spoke Spanish, if I want to say that to her, I can't just say that because she won't understand what it means. I have to think about what is a similar way to say it in Spanish. So metalinguistic awareness has to do with how do I um, express myself? How do I interpret meaning? Because the words are they are different across languages not just that they're different languages it's that they express different things in different ways across languages right and when we have this metalinguistic awareness that's when one language can support the other yeah oh absolutely and this is why we say Abs that's the fun of it is yeah. is interpreting what it says so uh, one day just to give you an example i have a ton of facebook friends and i love it because when we put things on facebook then i'll always hear from my friends from venezuela or colombia my grandson lost his first his two teeth at the same time about a year ago and so i said look at look at elias we now have, a, have an official molacho in my family <laughs> molacho is the mexican word for for toothless which you apply to little kids so all of a sudden I hear in Colombia, we say this, in Venezuela, we say this, in Puerto Rico, we say this. What a wonderful inadvertent, you know, not intended lesson in meta language, which is even within language, right. there's a lot of different ways of expressing the same phenomena. Okay, so how do we say that in English? You know, um, we, you know, we call kids toothless wonders and things like that. Um, but so how would you say that in English? But it's not the same as in Spanish. Yes. Well, yeah. I'm thinking about that in Vietnamese and we wouldn't have that either. But the fact yeah. that you have explained that to me, that there is a word for toothless uh -huh. in Spanish. And then there's in Venezuela, it's something in Guatemala, it's something else. Yeah. It made me think. I didn't even know it was going to create that kind of a conversation. I, That's what yes. was so fun is that people were like, oh, yeah. Oh, is that what you say? Is that how you say it? Well, this is the way we say it. Now, the reason that it works is if I don't say, yeah, but the Spanish is the correct one in Mexico. The Mexican Spanish is the right one. No, it's like, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, what are different ways to, you know, what are other ways to do that? Is that I don't put a value judgment. Um, and too often we say, well, now the standard way to say that would be. Right. So, you know, I allow the metalinguistic development to come without judging. Right. It's kind of like in uh, interconnect there because the, one of the first first framework, first principles of your framework is that there's no language hierarchy. Right. Right. And so right. it's not just like, not the Castilian Spanish. That, right. is, that is superior compared to uh -huh. Cuban Spanish uh -huh. right? or Central right. American Spanish. It's right. right. Uh -huh. It's just a different way of Spanish. Uh -huh. right? Yeah. So that's really. Let's end with talking about writing for a little bit. So we talked about a lot about reading. Um, I'm just loving this conversation. You're just 
Amazing. Thank Don't you. retire. Go come back and teach us oh. all. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of lot of up and coming rising stars. We can yeah. Um, can you tell us about writing and biliteracy? Yes. So writing is something that we don't wait until to do until kids can read. Is something that we start doing in kindergarten. Is something that we start doing in both languages. It's not something that we tell kids they can't do. So the four-year-old kid uh, who's writing a letter to Santa will go on and 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 on. May not be decipherable may not be something we can read but if we ask them to read it they'll read dear santa please bring me a truck a train a, you know blah, blah, blah. They, they they won't remember it tomorrow but they will they won't tell you they can't write by the middle of kindergarten kids will say oh, i can't write because they've been told they right. can't write right. so so writing needs to happen writing and reading need to happen together right. they mutually reinforce each other um, we can't privilege reading over writing. Um, writing can help reading. Reading can help writing. They're, they're mutually reinforcing. Um, and Spanish, contrary to popular belief, is not easier to learn to write than English, even though it has a transparent orthographic system. There are lots of little tricks in Spanish, like accents, um, like silent H's, like uh, soft C's and hard C's. So there, there are lots of little tricks that make it equally challenging for kids to learn. So um, we can teach kids, uh, we get, we need, we also need to teach writing with direct and explicit instruction. Yes. We can't just give the kid a pencil and say, um, write, and then say, well, you did it wrong. So, so um, in Literacy Squared, writing starts the same day as reading does, the first day of kindergarten. Um, we teach kids to write their name. We teach them to write the date. We teach them how the date is different when you're expressing it in numbers between Spanish and English, metalinguistic development. We do it regularly. We do it repeatedly. We have consistency. Um, we do writing in the content areas. We do writing in um, language arts. Um, but it's it it is it's critically important. We do shared writing. We do collaborative writing. We do independent writing. But we encourage writing, um, and we give it equal amount of time. Twenty five percent of our time in the reading block is devoted to writing. Is the literacy block is devoted to writing? So you're saying I, I envision in this. It's like uh, we might in the beginning we might talk about a book, uh, or like the theme of a book. Right. Let's talk about farm animals. So mm -hmm. the kids might talk about farm animals in Spanish in English with a partner. So that's the oracy part. Then we'll go read the book together. Right. There might be a, a lot of talking about it in Spanish and English. And then we'll go write about it or we'll write about when we went to when uh, was the time when we saw an animal that or we could do another prompt, of course. But it's about writing about what we just saw, what we just read. And so mm -hmm. that's the integrated part. Right, right. right. Uh, so how do we do bi, uh, like bilingual writing then? So generally in the yes. Literacy Squared program, we have encouraged teachers to develop writing in Spanish and writing in English. However, just the example that you mentioned is the perfect way, the perfect segue into talking about translanguaging. So we come back from a field trip to the zoo and we're writing about what we saw, right? And we're encouraging kids to write in Spanish about what we saw at the zoo. But the fact is we went into the aquarium at the zoo 
and the kid read on the little gold thing at the bottom of the jellyfish tank, jellyfish. So they come back and they write Vimos jellyfish. And we would not correct. We would not change. We would say, okay, here's a kid who knows about bilingual living. Because that's what kids in the U.S. do. We're asking them to write about it in Spanish, but they're writing about a phenomena they lived in English. Yes. And so if they need to do that in two languages, that becomes the bilingual writing. And we don't change that. Right. Because then it's, it's, we don't want to correct it. We want to say, oh, this is how, this is how, oh, yeah. Right. Vemo, yeah. Uh, no vemos uh, jellyfish. Uh-huh. We, so we, we added, right, vemos jellyfish, sorry, we see. Uh-huh. And then uh-huh. we would see we would see jellyfish, but the kids would know that in jellyfish in English. Then we would eventually add jellyfish in Spanish. We would, we would right, say, right, right. Uh huh. Yeah. We would say, oh, yes, you have the vimos uh-huh. and then jellyfish. Now let's add, like, there's no correcting. I just want to show you that this is another way of saying it. So now you have both the word jellyfish in Spanish and right. jellyfish in English. In English, right. right. Yeah. Yay. Well, I want to end this. I want to, there's so much, I can't believe an hour went by. I'm just, and yeah, it's it was one quick. book. <laughs> it was quick. I feel like there's a, there's a program you have called uh, S squared, literacy S squared. And so I think it's in your book. Teachers or students are, uh, teachers are going to have to get it. It's so great. Um, I'm going to end, I always end the podcast with uh, red light, yellow light, and a green light. So it's a metaphor for teachers. So red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing. A yellow light is something that you ask uh, students to start doing. And then a green light is something you ask them to continue doing. Just like we continue on a green light. When we see a yellow light, we start we start to slow down. And then red light, we stop. So what do I want teachers to stop doing? Yeah, so we'll do all okay. three. Yeah. Okay, all right. So to stop doing uh, would be to insist on language separation in bilingual programs. Um, We do want to develop codes in Spanish and codes in English, but we do not want to discourage translanguaging because that helps develop both of the languages. So so stop insisting that every time a child says something like vimos jellyfish, that we say jellyfish no es una palabra en español. ¿Cómo se dice en español? That we stop correcting that kind of language because that is so natural in the United States. And it's counterproductive to our ultimate goal of helping kids become biliterate. Right, right. Yellow is uh, something that we we should start doing. Okay, yellow, even if you're teaching in an English medium classroom, start including books in non-English languages. This is actually very good for English speaking kids too. Um, There's several studies in Canada that have been done with preschool programs that show that English speaking kids take an interest in Arabic when there are Arabic books in the classroom. And so this is something that, you know, we need to worry about bilingualism for our nation as a whole, including monolingual English speaking kids. So start making sure that your school, like your classroom libraries, um, are um, include non-English languages and represent the languages that are spoken in your classroom. And a green light, something we should keep doing. Keep on working hard. I know people are going to do it anyway. I don't need to tell them, but keep on loving kids. Keep on trying to get better, which I know that all teachers do anyway. Um, and we're never going to get there. We're always in a state of becoming, but, but keep on learning, keep on trying. Well, we are so inspired to keep on trying to keep on learning from a leader, 
from a leader, from a guru, from a living master like oh, you, Dr. You. Eskimia. So we'll have to have you back to talk about uh, teaching English to reading, to okay. teaching reading to English learners. So okay. thank you again uh -huh. for your time. My pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now, onto our recap. I am not at all qualified to be a dual language educator, but I stand next to them as we advocate for the same thing. Education that is equitable while maintaining students' languages and cultural assets. I wish I had listened to this conversation with Dr. Escamilla when I first started my career. I would have taken down my English-only signs. There was so much to take away from this podcast, mainly seeing students and their families as full and complete, not broken. I hope that you enjoy this conversation and feel affirmed in your advocacy and education work. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.